Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. You're listening to our Sex and Spirituality series, which will contain references to various aspects of human sexuality and may not be suitable for all listeners. Is the root of all religions the worship of penises and vaginas? 19th century writer and Rosicrucian enthusiast Hargrave Jennings thought so. He said that the worship of the reproductive powers is prehistoric and the secret origin of all the world's religions. In line with the yin and yang, as well as hermetic philosophy, the male power was active, the power of God, and the female power was passive, the power of nature or the earth mother. Eggs and palm fronds at Easter, the Hindu lingam, pagan and Judaic pillars, the Ark of the Covenant, and the cross itself are all signs of the cult of the Yanni and the phallus, so says Jennings. We've lost sight of this basic truth of our worship because of a confusion between the priestly class and the masses. Ancient priests likely understood the metaphorical nature of their worship, the creative, generative principle rather than literal sex, but the communities of believers did not grasp the finer points of this sexual symbolism, and the masses' confusion led to salacious and lascivious rites standing in for the true pure sex religion and the gradual sublimation of genital worship. Luckily, we've got Hargrave Jennings and his phallic occult confession to clear all of this up and help us discover the penis and the vagina at the center of our modern church services. My name is Rob C. Thompson, here at the home of people who have and or love people who have pubic hair, occult confessions. I am joined by Jacob Wheatley, Knight of the Dangling Serpent, for our day of penises and vaginas. Who else? I mean, it's kind of my domain. <laughs> now, Jacob, uh, I got to tell everyone, this is exciting. Jacob uh, lives in Florida most of the time. Um, he moved to Florida, but he is back. He's actually in the room with me right now. Yeah, I got really excited when you told me we were talking about penis worship. So I got in my car and drove 13 hours to be here. <laughs> it happened right then. I didn't tell him till this morning. Yeah. I just, it's my <laughs> penis intuition. <laughs> and uh, I've got another surprise for you all. Uh, blast from the past. Uh, this is Anna Pavon, who uh, was with us in our very first season. Anna is remote from Virginia, but we've managed to get her on the show. Anna, what's up? Hey, how's it going? It's been so long. I'm really excited. For anyone who's like that voice, I think I can... Well, what episode, Rob? It is Joan of Arc. Anna plays Joan of Arc. She also appears on our uh, Marie Laveau episode and a few episodes, particularly, I think, in the Lady Magic series. Yeah, that, I think right so. Long, long ago, like four years ago now. <laughs> back in the day. Anna back and I reconnected in... for Dark Pool, and now she's back in, uh, back on the big show. Yeah. Yes. I'm really excited to talk about penises. <laughs> Aren't we all? What about vaginas, man? Also vaginas. That was implied. <laughs> Obviously. All right. Uh, see if you can k- keep up with the pledge. Do you know the pledge? It's been so long. Jacob and I will no. do it. And you can just throw in a word here and there where you feel inspired. Okay. Well, that's a lot of pressure, but. <laughs> <laughs>
We, the members of the secret order of alchemical actors, who solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. Ah, that felt painful. Actors and it. It's been four years. I've been doing other things. I'm sorry. Oh, I just love that those are the only two you've picked out. Jacob, open up the plugs. Uh, plug, plug. Is that what she said? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Plug, plug, plug. <laughs> I failed that one. There's a little bit of complexity because Jacob and I are both in the room so we can hear each other's voices live and we're online listening to Anna. So I hear like double sometimes. It's a little bit of an echo, yeah. yeah. Uh,. What are we talking about? Plugs. <laughs> Let me thank some patrons. John L. and Sean O. Thank you for joining us. Also, and uh, speaking of bumps, Pledge Bump from Frotter M. Frotter M? Frotter M. Thanks. Uh, Thanks all. Welcome to the patron crew. Um, I, I, I want to set aside the rest of today's uh, plugs to talk about fame. Because we were famous for a few days recently. Uh, we made the Spotify history charts. Now, we never talk about this stuff. Uh, we made it up to number 48, which is pr pretty good, uh, considering there's, I don't know, like 30,000 history podcasts. Uh, I want to say a few things about it. Uh, you know, charts are not something, it's there's something I track um, just to compare how we're doing on different platforms. Uh, I have to say I'm no lover of particular corporations, but I, just everyone should know Spotify's algorithm is many times kinder to us than anyone else's. Yeah, that's just how it is. Um, and so I, I think that the size of the show is often kind of masked because Spotify is also very secretive about the metrics on their shows, whereas mm -hmm. in other uh, platforms, you can see how many reviews and all this sort of stuff. Spotify tells you nothing. Maybe that benefits us. I don't I don't know. You're just like, bam. <laughs> yeah. Um, although most of our reviews on iTunes are quite positive. I don't I don't know. Anyway, uh, it, Catherine Hepburn said, fame is always behind you. Uh, and by that, she meant you should never be concerned about it. It's something that's happened, and it's not in front of you. We're not especially concerned with, with that. We're, we're grateful to Spotify that the algorithms have been good to us. We're grateful to all of you. Uh, here's what I want to say about this. We have a couple hundred patrons. That's all. And I have a few hundred people that you know I'm in conversation with on Discord, Instagram, and different areas. I mean, this is a core audience of folks who makes this show possible. And you guys, you guys, not just us, you guys made it into the top 50 history. It's sort of insane. That's fucking cool. Yeah. Such a small group of people making this message uh, audible to a very large, a, a reasonably large audience, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're not call her daddy or anything, but we're reaching a fair number of people. And you guys are doing this. So I guess this is a long way of saying, keep it up, patrons. We love you. We thank you. Join us. Support us. Because it's it's working. We're doing Until we things. can become Call Her Daddy. Until we can become Call Her Daddy. Yeah. You know, Anna, we're doing it because we're talking sex pretty much every week. This is Call Her Daddy. <laughs> Do you think it. that we'd get, like, in trouble for calling this episode Call Her Daddy? Because I think we should change it. Well, it's that. Daddy and Mommy. Again, but Anna, I have to remind you that vaginas are involved. Call her Dommy. Call her Dommy. Mommy. <laughs> also, in a postmodern age here, we have to also bear in mind that you could be a daddy or a mommy regardless of your genitals. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Close up those plugs. 
Plug, plug, plug. All right, let me talk about my man Hargrave Jennings. Are you guys ready for this? Yeah. Hargrave. Hargrave. <laughs> Anna's writing that down. That'll be her first child. That's the first name. <laughs> Hargrave. Taking notes. <laughs> Hargrave Jennings was born around 1817. He's not somebody we know a whole lot about, so I'm going to do his biography in a sec couple seconds here. He was among his earliest published works was a series of sea sketches, which he submitted to the Metropolitan Magazine at the age of 15. I imagine that sketches about the sea. Like the ocean sea? Yeah, I didn't bother to read them, so I can't say for sure, but sea sketches. Okay. It could be sketches of the sea. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... He worked as a secretary for the Italian Opera in London and died in 1890 in St. James's Place. That's pretty much what I know about him biographically. All right. <laughs> but that's not the interesting thing. The interesting stuff is what my man had to say, specifically about sex worship. In his many books on Rosicrucianism and the ancient history of religion, Jennings asserts that he does not believe in the absolute righteousness of any single religious tradition. He tends to believe that much of modern belief and worship overlaps in ancient history. The current difference between the various major religious traditions, the, the differences that is, are fairly superficial. Underneath, they're very similar. He says, We are only correct when we retire into cloudland with speculation and at once deny the possibility of special truth or abstract truth or indeed any truth. That's right. He says we cannot come to any truth on religion. You can't come to any truth on religion? Not, not a final truth. <laughs> Until you enter cloudland? Well, and he's saying the cloudland of speculation. So you just sort of have to, have to humble yourself and say, you know, I'm making guesses here. Mm. Keeping um, an open mind, for lack good. of a better term. That's pretty good. You can see why I'm talking about this guy. He's, he's kind of our people in this way. <laughs> Not going to agree with him about everything, but it's a good start. <laughs> it's a fairly radical notion that he's giving us, considering that he's writing in the 1880s. What Jennings means is not that all truth is absolutely relative, but rather that absolute truths are impossible to formulate because they are shrouded in mystery. He says, I'm quoting him, All religions commence in myths and disappear in myths because the ends and purposes of life, of man altogether, the meaning of nature itself, are wrapped up in mystery. Ultimate truths are beyond human comprehension. This is me now, not him. <laughs> I'm trying to explain. Ultimate truths are beyond human comprehension. And so only at best subject to, as we're saying, speculation. At the end of his short, anonymously published book on phallic worship, he quotes the Bhagavad Gita. Even they who worship other gods, says Krishna, the incarnate deity, in an ancient Indian poem, worship me, although they know it not. Think about that for a second. Even they who worship other gods, worship me, although they know it not. Ooh, so like going back to like one single source God kind of thing. Is that what you're saying? That we speculate on which gods we're worshiping. Sort of what Krishna's point is here. But we are all worshiping Krishna, mm -hmm. regardless of what we tell ourselves or each other. So I guess we could fill in, we could change out Krishna for Yahweh or Jesus or... Um, other gods. What's wrong with me? How am I drawing a blank on gods? <laughs> Other Zeus. gods. Zeus. Okay. Uh, 
Dambala, whatever. I'm, now you're, I'm getting there. there I'm go. getting there. Now you're on the roll. <laughs> Divine source. If I go to the spiritualist, uh, the horned god. Ooh. Uh, oh, yeah, now there you go. Now you're all right. Now we're getting into it. <laughs> you can sub out any of these names, and it's the same god. That's Krishna's point. Yes. All right. Yeah. Jennings likes Krishna because he's partial to India. He believes that all religions have their root in Central Asia. A quick Google search more or less affirms that Jennings' belief has stood the test of time, with the Vedic and Hindu religion winning the prize for oldest, although belief in supernatural beings is arguably as old as humanity itself. If you haven't done my India episodes yet, uh, dear confessors, the Vedas or the Vedic religion is, is, the er is early Hinduism, just like Judaism predates Christianity. Except Judaism kept going, the Vedic religion sort of just is Hinduism. Anyhow. Morphed. Yeah, morphed. There you go. His life's work, speaking of Jennings, focused on the occult secrets of Rosicrucianism and his theory of phallic worship. All religions, he argued, begin with the worship of the penis. And Anna, and what's the other one? Vaginas. The vagina. There we go. <laughs> now I haven't looking. forgotten about vaginas. <laughs> Good. <laughs> this is admittedly a bit of speculation on Jennings' part. He doesn't really do any original research himself. He's not reading primary documents or excavating caves, unlike us who are constantly excavating caves. I literally just came from a cave today, <laughs> you, too. You stopped on your 13-hour drive. I, I did. I had to. I was like, man, could you excavate a cave Yeah. in South Carolina? <laughs> I said, I guess I have the time for Probably it. Probably Virginia. There's a lot of caves in Virginia, right? Near Anna. Yeah. No. No? Well, not near Richmond. Oh, but well, Loray. Yeah, you got caves. Loray. There's a cave there. You're known for your caves. Come on. I'm known for my Virginia. caves, too. Caves. Well, you personally? No. <laughs> Are we talking about vaginas again? <laughs> Whoa, you got dirty quick. Okay. About, I mean, it's bound to happen at some it's, point. It, I just can't. Hold it's all right. The filter. No, the that's filter. good. This is what the people are listening for. This is how we're going to get those call her daddy numbers. There we go. <laughs> Bring in more phallic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So anyway, my man's not doing primary research is what I'm saying, or archaeology. He's pulling together the work of other scholars to make the case that everything has its roots in phallicism. By A the Freudian approach to religion. Okay. Yeah. It's all about oh, the wow. penis. There you go. Nice. Now you're now you're getting intellectual. You go both I, ways. I went and, back to school geez. recently. Uh, <laughs> that'll do it. <laughs> All right. Now I need to qualify the word phallicism because I think a lot of folks are going to think uh, penis, but he doesn't just mean penis when he says when he says phallus or mm -hmm. when he says phallicism. He means uh, the sex organs. To him, phallicism means all sex organs, encompassing all male and female yeah. power. Yeah. Uh, specifically the male and female power of sexual generation. So the man's power to... Okay, well, it, 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 I can't say this enough. It makes me nervous. I understand we're in a gender-fluid world. Man and woman, fluid concepts, penis and vagina. We did all that, right, at the beginning of the episode. So I'm, I'm, I apologize <laughs> if I step on any toes here. The male. Try to use male and female as much as possible. The male inseminates, right? That's mm -hmm. the male's power. And the female's power is to, I guess, germinate in the womb, right? I don't know. I'm not an expert on this. Take <laughs> that sperm Take and that sperm make it and a baby. Make it into a person, yeah. 
Yeah. Oh. Pretty cool. I've seen it happen. It's pretty cool. Do this you, is the first wait, time I had sidebar, this I learned a really cool fact recently that the female egg actually chooses which sperm to, um, I don't know, hook up with. Really? Based yeah. on what? It's not the fastest swimmer. Speed dating. So not, not speed. Take your time. Plotting wins the race. We learned that in the tortoise and the hare. It's also a sexual metaphor. Is it really? Think about it. Oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. Yeah, don't rush. Oh. No way to please your partner. Huh. The truth. <laughs> <laughs> all right, to confuse this a little bit, because we're not confused enough already, we're all over the place. We're from Aesop all the way to... Yeah, all around. Uh, to Freud. He, he uses separate words for penis and vagina. He calls one the phallus and one the yoni. Penis, phallus, vagina, yoni. I know a guy named Yanni. Do you? I do. Does he does he play uh, adult contemporary music? He might. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> do you know the Yanni? Mm-hmm. <laughs> do no. you know who I'm talking about? <laughs> no. He's got oh. long hair. Wait. Do you know Yanni? Do yeah, you know? I know who you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, Yanni. He plays adult contemporary music. Uh-huh. It's like smooth jazz. Oh no, this is a different Yanni. Isn't it? Yeah. That's what he does, right? Yeah. yeah. He's like Kenny G, but with an orchestra. Oh, yeah, I guess I so. Look up Yanni now. Y a n n i, but this is spelled Y o n i. Oh, when you said play, I thought you were saying like just playing music. Oh, like that, he like, listens to it. No, like, li- yeah, yeah, <laughs> like. <laughs> our history of genital worship has only been hidden from the public because our middle brow taste has deemed this plain and simple truth indecent. Mm. He's talking in 19th century terms. We were we are far less decent today than we were then, but still. Not going around talking about penises in church. So it's only hidden because we refuse to acknowledge it. In fact, the evidence of our ancient ties to phallic worship is all around us, built into the very footprint of our cities and world wonders, which we'll get into. Obelisk towers and steeples represent in figure forth the male principle. Pyramids, circular magnified forms, and rhomboidal or undulating serpentine shapes denote the female natural power. The one set of forms are masculine, therefore aggressive and compelling. The other set of forms are feminine, therefore submissive and ennobling. But all are alike phallic and mean the same thing, that is the natural motived power which causes and directs the world, the power which is the world, in fact. The phallus or lingam has been an object of worship across cultures. The sun, serpent, okay, so penis is first, everyone. Penis, penis. (laughs) Penis is always first. Yeah, it's, that's, I guess that's human history, isn't it, man? Unfortunate mm-hmm. truth. Well, we're going to blame Jennings. He put penises first. I mean, just chronologically, the vagina's going to get its moment. Which came first, the penis or the vagina? <laughs> Wait, that was bad. <laughs> well, and you know, the, the, uh, the Old Testament, the, the Pentateuch has an uh, opinion on that. Oh, it does. Again, the penis. <sighs> the sun, the serpent, and phallic emblem... emblem emblem all serve in the worship of what Jennings calls the generative principle. Here Jennings is talking about both literal procreation and its mystical components which blend for him in a kind of perfect mystery. The Greeks personified phallic worship in the god Priapus. 
Priapus was the son of Aphrodite, but had several potential fathers, including Dionysus, Hermes, Pan, and Zeus. Really wildly different characters there. We have that horny half-goat in the woods, we have the god of wine, and we have, you know, king god. Oh, and Hermes, just kicking around in there. Magic god, messenger man, the trickster. Pit stop, you know. It's ever it's a quite a collection. Anyway, could any of them could be dad? This is like uh, the plot of uh, that ABBA movie. Uh, Mama Mia. Mama Mia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, that's probably where they got it from. Yeah, this is totally ABBA ripped it this takes off, or whoever place in, like, wrote that Greece, thing, doesn't it? Yes, you're right. Actually, yeah, <laughs> they're very close. Wow, they're practically the same story. Yeah, same movie, the same story. He was the, uh, a man Priapus was the patron of penises with a perpetual erection, cursed by Hera to be impotent and foul. Yikes. A perpetual erection? Yeah, but he's impotent. Also foul. So he's probably not getting laid very easily. No, a few people like that. (laughs) Zing. The gods tossed him off Olympus and he, because you can't live with that, like in your house. Um, and he was raised by shepherds. Who are pretty cool. Like, in all cultures, shepherds are always the coolest. They're the fun guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they They're put just up out with in the fields yeah. about with their sheep. If you're going to abandon a child or a god or anybody, they're just going to pick it up and raise it, those shepherds. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Thanks, shepherds. Thanks, Why are we worshiping shepherds? <laughs> or something. At least a shrine. Something. Yeah. Bacchus or Dionysus uh, and Hercules uh, were also considered Greek phallic gods, so Bacchus and Dionysus names for the same god. Other phallic deities include uh, Shiva or Siva in India, Osiris in Egypt, Baal and Asher. Osiris, of course, had his penis, all his body parts removed, and he couldn't find his penis, and so he got, I think, a golden penis fashioned for Isis. But Baal and Asher are probably the ones you guys never heard of, right? Mm Mm-mm. Baal was an ancient Mesopotamian god of weather and fertility. He was worshipped by ancient Canaanite and Phoenicians, Canaanites and Phoenicians, as the slayer of a great sea serpent. He also slayed the Canaanite death god Mot, becoming the leader of the ancestral spirits. It's pretty cool. Interestingly, the name Baal is also used as a synonym for Adonia, or my lord, which was used for the Hebrew Yahweh. So a possible connection there. I was going to say, is this the same, um, uh, because you said God, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Baal same one in the Old Testament? I assume, yes. Because so, when they were uh, worshipping false idols and stuff, that was one Baal of Baal was among them. But I think Jennings wants us to remember that the name Baal, if we do some etymology, could conceivably translate to my lord. Okay, cool. There's always, I mean, he, he's playing games here, and it's the 19th century, so I don't know if he's right on this, but... He makes a point that the Old Testament in particular would take the gods of various religions and turn them into devils or demons. Mm-hmm. Asher was the head, the other god, was the head of the Assyrian pantheon of gods and stood in for Marduk as the slayer of Tiamat when the Assyrians conquered Babylon. So they just subbed out some god names there. You can see our episode on UFO apocalypse or something. Maybe. Space apocalypse. Yep. <laughs> Talk about Marduk. Mm-hmm. Pillars, poles, and stones served as natural emblems for the phallus. The serpent on the pole, or caduceus, is a symbol for the tree of life, also resurrection and regeneration. This might help explain why it's often a symbol used in medical contexts. Uh, you ever seen that? The yeah, I have noticed thing? that. Yeah, that's what it's all about, resurrection and regeneration. It's a penis symbol that you're looking at there. 
I'm the Knight of Resurrection. <laughs> yeah, that, we should all start. We, Jacob, this is what we should do. You know, the next time we're with a romantic partner, we want to introduce him to our resurrection. I'll have to remember that. Something then, like that. That's a, yeah. I think that's a good name for it. Welcome to my resurrection. <laughs> get out my resurrection say, here. As a yeah. woman, if somebody said that to me, I would just probably walk out. Okay, what if I said I'm going to get out my tree of life? I would also walk out. <laughs> I'm not going to have this problem. I, I'm into dudes. Yeah, so. men, men might go for it more. Nah. What if we phrase it as a question? Is it all right if I bring out my caduceus? <laughs> That sounds pretty romantic to me. Come Maybe on. it's better. You're asking for consent if you say that. Yeah. There Is it go. okay? Would you like to see the caduceus? <laughs> Here on Call Confessions, we believe in consent. <laughs> <laughs> we absolutely do. Ask a question. Don't make a statement. Yes. Pillars, often with carved heads, abound as phallic symbols. The Thebans represented Bacchus as a pillar, as did the Assyrians with their god Nebo. Bacchus or Dionysus was the god of wine and theater, with an orgiastic cult of women who met in the woods for secret rites. Nebo or Nabu was worshipped by the Assyrians as the god of wisdom and the inventor of writing. Jacob, are you familiar with any other gods who tend to hang out and appear as pillars? Appear as pillars? Hmm. Sound at all like a story of Moses? Ah, fire. Yeah, God appears as a pillar of fire. That's right. Indeed. Also turns people into pillars of salt. Lot's wife. Don't turn around. Lesson learned. (laughs) Never turn around. (laughs) Contrary to the song, Bright Eyes. Mm -hmm. The Babylonians regarded him as a son of Marduk. He wore a horned hat and rode a winged dragon. Nebo, that is. Uh, Gifted to him by his father, he was associated with Hermes and Toth as well and uh, was the Mesopotamian version of the pagan hermetic gods. In Scotland, there are the stones set on end, like the Calanae Standing Stones on the Isle of Lewis or the Macree Stones on the Isle of Arran. I've seen some of these. They're quite amazing. Uh, and they're ancient. You don't, We don't know what happened, um, hmm. how they got there. They're beautiful. And they're really something to stand near. They're very tall. While folks like Jennings have speculated these stones were used for ceremony and worship, their exact purpose is lost to history. These are literally tall stones, tall stones set on end, often in triangular or circular formations. We can think of Stonehenge, but Stonehenge is another thing entirely, for Jennings anyway, and we're going to get to that in a bit, so put a pin in that one. Triads, you're going to love this, Jacob. Maybe on a two. Triads represented the phallus and the testicles. Triads, whenever oh. we see three. Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Love talking about testicles here on Occult Confessions. For the Assyrians, the supreme god Asher is the phallus, with the sky god Anu, the right testicle, and the doorkeeper and scribe god Hea, the left testicle. Asher's genitals, by the way, the Assyrian god, also had their own god, Beltus. Beltus? You are an important god if your if your penis has its own god. <laughs> That's that's a lot to take in. <laughs> I'm not sure what Beltus did all day, but it's a pretty... I don't know what it is. Uh, I was going to say it's a cool job. I don't know. It's a job. It, Somebody's got to do it. I mean, I'd sign up for that job. So, <laughs> God of the God's penis. Yeah. Uh, we could update Jennings' triad with recent scholarship and say that the triad is actually Anu, Enlil, and Enki, the supreme creator, father god, and god who rescued humanity from the great flood, respectively. 
I can't say for certain how well these three equate to the penis and the testicles. None of them appear as pole or ball-shaped entities, so who knows? That would be pretty funny if that's just how they... <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how they were represented. Yeah. I mean, Jennings is making leaps, man. Mm-hmm. But they're fun. They're fun leaps. I'm into this. This is pretty cool. <laughs> Many symbols took on this phallic significa- signification. This is going to get more fun. The trident is kind of a phallus. Think about it. Okay, yeah. The fig leaf, which is often covering your phallus. And the tree between two boulders. <laughs> the sexiest of trees. This <laughs> is the most obvious one. Right. Well, that tree's always coming on to you. Exactly. <laughs> More obtuse symbols include the bull, the goat, the serpent, the torch, and the crozier, best identified today as the hooked staff of a Catholic bishop. Yeah. The triad or trinity came to be represented by the cross. This was originally the letter T, or tau, which served as an emblem for creation, but metamorphosed into the cross. The cross was a prominent symbol among Egyptians, Persians, pagans of various stripes, and the Druids, most notably among the pagans. It appears in the Temple of Serapis, a Greco-Egyptian deity combining attributes of Osiris, the sacred, sacred bull Apis, underworld god Hades, earth goddess Demeter, and Dionysus. The cross also appears on pre-Christian runic ornaments in Sweden Denmark. So Jennings says all penises. <laughs> there's some. I mean, there's something on his mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there's going to be another thing now. Okay, Anna, it's your turn. Oh, because I have a vagina. Correct. Okay. I mean, there's a reason I have each of you. I figured as much. Actually. And you've already identified as uh, one with a cave, so you started this. Yeah, that one's kind of on you. I'm sorry. It was one joke. <laughs> That's all it takes. That really is all it takes. <laughs> the female power is represented by the yoni, vulva, womb, birthplace, water, origin, or hole. You prefer any of those, Anna? Origin speaking to me. Origin's nice, yeah. That sounds nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. May I show you my origin? Your origin. It is the origin, though. It kind it of is. is the origin of all people, don't you think? I think wow. it's a great way to call it. So romantic. Yeah, it's beautiful. Oh, thanks. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to go ahead and riff for a second here. I think part of the reason that we're unwilling to think of it, the vagina in those terms is I think some men are kind of turned off thinking about a woman as a mother. I mean, the birth is not, it's a beautiful event, but let me be honest, it's not the sexiest occasion. It's kind of terrifying. Seeing a vagina do those things is, uh, it'll open your eyes. But I think that a man should be more comfortable with that aspect of a woman and that aspect of sex. Am I wrong? I mean, it comes with the territory. Yeah. It's true. You might as well. And I think, I mean, yeah, it's like, that's freaky that a vagina can do something like that. But the fact that you, like, women have this organ that can heal itself after pushing out another human being like that's kind of magic it's kind of incredible uh, yeah so i mean for a heterosexual man or a homosexual woman or whatever all in between i invite everyone to this party who wants to play with a vagina i think that uh, i think the inclination uh, Anna, correct me if i'm wrong that you know some men of a you know how do i put this tinderized variety mm-hmm. want to approach the culture va- oh, oh there you go there you go thank you uh they approach the vagina as a toy 
yeah, an object. Yeah, a, a pump and dump is to be what used. it's referred to yeah. as. That's ridiculous. It That's should really be treated. That's really sad. It should be treated with respect and love. It, it, you're, you are uh, lucky to be in its presence. Yeah. Her if presence, all men thought that, presence. Rob, this world would be a different place. Anyhow, but I'll call, or I'll, I'll use the term origin more often. Origin. <laughs> From now on. Uh, your suggestion on it. Mm-hmm. The Greek letter Delta, think about the Delta, it's a triangle. The goddesses Juno and Venus represent the Yanni in Western paganism, Isis in Egyptian religion, sort of obvious. Other goddesses of the Yanni include Astarte, Diana, Artemis, Rhea, Sibylle, Ceres, Ava, Freya, and Frigga. Let's talk about some of the less familiar ones of those, shall we? Rhea, Sibylle, and Ceres are all Greek agricultural goddesses of harvest or grain. In the origin sense, right? Makes sense. Feeds the people. Mm-hmm. Rhea, the child of Uranus, or Uranus, and Gaia was sometimes... Did you know that my child is way into the solar system, that Uranus is the only planet that uh, rotates on its side? Mm-hmm. You knew that. I, I yeah. think I did I'm hear really that. I'm really big into astro- <laughs> It was news to me. Really? <laughs> I had no idea yeah. until my three-year-old told me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I do this other stuff. I don't do podcasts on the solar system. Uh, Rhea was the child of Uranus and Gaia and was some t- and is sometimes regarded as the mother of the gods. Freya was the Norse warrior goddess associated with sensual love. Frigga, less well-known, was the goddess of wifely love. There's debate as to whether or not Freya and Frigga are in fact the same. Fun fact, they are the namesake for the English name for Friday. Really? Oh. It says Jennings anyway. And Jennings also tosses in what might have been a fairly novel idea at the time, that Roman Catholicism is essentially a goddess religion with its cults of the Virgin Mary. A common natural symbol for the Yanni is the Conca Veneris shell. The Conca Veneris. I think they're kind of like puka-y. Oh. Like a, like a conch shell? No, no, Conca Veneris, look, they look like a puka shell. Do you know what a puka shell yeah. is? Yeah they, yeah. they make necklaces out of them. Think about it. Like, the it closes in. It's got the little cleft in the middle. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, I can see that. Yeah. Also, the sistrum, which is an ancient Egyptian musical instrument that was basically a cross between a triangle and a tambourine. He says some esoteric stuff here. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a vagina instrument. We'll all learn to play, and we'll be better with women. Learn to play the instrument. That's what when people are like, how can I be better in bed? You just hand them the instrument. Learn to play the system. Learn to play the... <laughs> That's some sage advice right there. Learn to play the system and you shall never be lonely, my friend. Uh, <laughs> need to get t-shirts. The cleft stone or hole in the wall has occupied a place of significance as a site of worship uh, of the Earth Mother. Such clefts are found at the Roman Temple of Vesta, best known for its virgins, Ireland's St. Declaws Stone, and the Indian pilgrimage site, the Cow's Belly. Wall holes. Jennings is vague about the significance of all these connections. The gods he names are certainly not exclusively genital or sexual gods, although they have phallic fertility and generative qualities. His point may be that certain gods encompass a phallic power which is derived from earlier versions that were mostly or purely purely phallic or yonic. The same could be said for pillars or seashells. These items enter worship because they suggest sexual organs and indicate the prominent place that sexual organs have played in religion throughout history. 
Their continued presence in culture and religion shows the persistence of a sublimated sexuality in spirituality. Again, I'm trying to like get through his point here, but mm -hmm. we have to bear in mind that, as Jacob says, he sees penises and vaginas everywhere. And it's delightful, and it's interesting, but, you know. <laughs> Somewhere a stretch. <laughs> Healthy occult confessions, grain of salt. Rituals and festivals, I like much better, his conversation about these. Let's get into that. His ideas about rituals and festivals begin with the Roman Bacchanalia. The Roman Bacchanalia in October and the Liberalia in March were both festivals in honor of Bacchus or Dionysus, my favorite god, because he's the god of performance, theater in particular. The Liberalia featured also wine, which is cool. Wine is pretty cool. In moderation. In moderation, Anna. <laughs> well. <laughs> the, Needed to tell myself that two days ago. Oh, and no. I'm going to be so tired right now, probably. I can text you. The Liberalia featured a parade in which a giant penis, is this what was happening to you two nights ago? A giant penis was led through the town and women ran through the forests half naked. Does this sound familiar? Yeah, it's like pride. Yeah. <laughs> 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 <I, laughs> It's back. The Liberalia is back. Wow. The parade for the October Bacchanalia, a kind of harvest event, featured Bacchans carrying wine and figs, men carrying poles, and virgins carrying baskets of fruit. Why were the virgins a separate category? Just out of curiosity. Uh, from also, what? <laughs> are these men or men holding poles? Would you say women holding wine? No, it's Bacchants carrying wine and figs. So those would be specific worshippers of Bacchus. But we, we single out virgins, I think, because um, I would guess, and I'm just as a guess here, Anna, that the carrying of the baskets of fruit would be a way of um, inspiring their own future fertility, whereas mm -hmm. a woman who is married and has children doesn't need to be concerned about that. Everybody at this particular event ran around praising Bacchus, getting drunk, and having sex after the sun went down, please. For the Lupercalia, in honor of Pan, priests ran naked through the streets, struck married women on the hands and belly as an omen of fruitfulness. So in that case, we're singling out the married ladies. You said struck? Struck them. Like Give them a good whack. Okay. Hopefully they're not pregnant at the time. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? What did I say? Did I say where they were striking him with? Let's maybe like leaves. Let's say something uh, not. That was going to be my not like a two question. <laughs> yeah, the festival of Venus included the penis float again. It's back, and women parading naked and dancing suggestively. So we're getting the ladies involved. Has anyone ever been to Burning Man? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of like this. Huh? I don't think they had it this year. Mm -mm. Did they? No, they didn't. They canceled it. There were a series of festivals to Venus in ancient Rome, and Jennings associated most, if not all of them, with genital worship. In the case of the Veneralia, which focused on promoting sexual propriety, he was probably a bit off the mark. The Veneralia involved washing a statue of the goddess at the baths. However, there was a festival that better fit Jennings' ideology, and that was the April Wine Festival, or Vinalia, which was originally for Jupiter, but came to focus on Venus. For the Vinalia, common girls and prostitutes gathered at Venus's temple separately to ask for blessings of beauty, charm, and wit. Cool. Hmm. Common girls, though, not, not at the same time as prostitutes. I was going to say common girls and prostitutes. Separate groups. 
They get their own time. Jennings also ties in the maypole. Naturally. A penis. A penis, yes. Very obviously a phallic symbol connects back to the Roman Floralia Festival. Okay, now, this is my favorite. I love the Floralia Festival. It was a festival in honor of Flora, the goddess of flowers, whose temple was located by the Circus Maximus where Rome's great chariot races were held. Flora's festival had a focus on fertility. Revelers released hares and goats, and prostitutes danced and performed live sex acts as well as mock gladiatorial battles. At the same time? <laughs> I would think that these were. this was just your day, like you oh, would do okay. one after the other. Yeah. Your festival program. And this encouraged fertility by what making everyone just horny or aggressive and horny (laughs) (laughs) according to jennings somewhere in there we also had a pole that people danced around the maypole but there's no evidence of that that i'm aware of Mm. but he figured it had to be there is that um mayday that's my birthday (laughs) Nice. We'll get you a poll. I already have one. <laughs> you guys are on tonight. Bacchanals and the rights to ball were also evident among the pagans of Britain, Ireland, Scotland, Gaul, France, and Germany. Jennings speculates that Stonehenge, remember Stonehenge? may have been a temple of Bacchus by way of Apollo. Jennings interprets Bacchus as a creator god and Apollo as the sun god, which allows the pair to overlap, the sun being often the object of worship as a creator or symbol for the creator. People often think Stonehenge is a kind of clock, or at least that it was involved the positioning of the sun, so that makes sense. Jennings traces this idea to a passage from Hecatius, preserved by Diodorus Siculus, in which the historian observes that in an island beyond Gaul as large as Sicily, the people worshipped Apollo in a circular temple. All right. The Hebrews practiced a form of phallic worship. Time for the Hebrews. (laughs) Even the Hebrews? The Hebrews. Wow. I know, I just said that so casually. You did. The Hebrews (laughs) (laughs) practiced a form of phallic worship as evidenced by their circumcision rites. Let's bear in mind, they were very concerned with the penis. Jennings says that ritual circumcision was a custom the Hebrews and Syrians borrowed from the Egyptians. Also in ancient Hebrew culture, when you took a sacred oath, you would place your hand under the other party's thigh because the penis was the most sacred part of the body. (laughs) We need to bring this back. (laughs) Hey, no time like the present. (laughs) I think when any of you guys stand me up for a recording, if I had grabbed you by the thigh and you had grabbed beforehand... Promise me. Now we have all kinds of lawsuits, wouldn't we? Yep. Uh, King David of Old Testament fame would mutilate male captives to deprive them of their ability to take part in the Hebrews' phallic mysteries. More directly, the second book of Kings talks about a serpent idol. Hezekiah destroys a brazen serpent that Moses had made, which the children of Israel burned incense for. Mm-hmm. You know this one? No, I, vaguely, it sounds familiar. Yeah. You know all about serpents as it, they relate to the Bible, don't you? Yeah, <laughs> it's. I mean, it's a big part in it. <laughs> the Bible loves serpents. It really does. I don't know anything about the Bible, so keep all of the, the background knowledge coming, please. But what do you know about serpents? Me? No, no, like not much. <laughs> 
Well, <laughs> you're missing out. <laughs> Jennings speculates that the Ark of the Covenant may have also contained phallic idols. Jacob, what's the Ark of the Covenant? Uh, it's in the Holy of Holies. Yeah, it's the Holy of Holies. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? So it's um the uh, in like their place of worship. It's the centermost room where the Ark of the Covenant is kept. I'm but there was sure. original one. The ori- yes. There was the original one. Yeah. With the original word of God, right? Yes, that's yeah. where they. Say so that's it what is. you're referring to it in the individual synagogues. Now mm-hmm. they have an ark. Yeah. 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 The Egyptians, says Jennings, had a sacred ark containing the phallus, the egg, and the serpent for the male creator, phallus, female preserver, egg, and a destroyer, serpent. That's what the Egyptians had. He said they had an ark. Mm-hmm. What the hell is an ark? Who the hell knows? Like a big chest or something? I That's don't know. what it was, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, this trinity directly parallels the Hindu Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. Right? We have uh, Brahma, the creator, Vishnu, the preserver, Shiva, the destroyer. All comes in threes. All comes in threes. Donna, you still there? Yeah, I'm kind of stuck on the um, the ark. <laughs> it's not like a boat. It's like a, no, I know. It's like a I just some, thing. so they put all these things in the ark, and who puts them there? God. It usually well, at least from what I was told, it was like um like someone who was anointed or what because no one can like go into the room where it's at either it's like these like sacred texts like the original verses and stuff from the bible is what they say and a few other religious items um but like it's they say it's sealed or at least that's what they told us growing up that it's sealed and like you can't go into the room or uh, only like specific people can actually like enter the room other people who aren't anointed will burst in flames but that's not true. That's not true. That's just what they said to scare us. by a serpent. Oh, yeah, you okay. get bit by a serpent. But Je- what Jennings is saying is that the whole tradition of arcs had nothing to do with Bible verses or anything, but yeah. it actually contained an egg, a penis, and a serpent. He said the Greeks had a similar tradition to the Egyptians, praying an ark containing the same objects in a mystic procession, and the Druids may have worshipped using an ark or oblong chest. I have to say we don't know a whole lot about the Druids. Too old. Too long ago. Mm-hmm. We don't know much about them. The lotus, moving to Asian culture, is another such arc, representing a ship on the eternal ocean of time, with the calyx representing the female principle and the flower sitting out of it, the male principle. Picture the lotus. Hmm. The lotus is a revered symbol across religious traditions, even though it is most closely associated with Hinduism and Buddhism. Brahma emerges from the lotus on the dark waters of an empty universe, and after a millennium of contemplation, he produces the perfect male and perfect female from his right and left side, respectively. In the form of the lily, says Jennings, this symbolism crossed into Hebrew and Christian tradition, appearing in the Temple of Solomon. A lily is a lotus is a lily. Ritual prostitution. Oh, this is so fascinating. (laughs) Jacob's eyebrows went up. Ritual prostitution? Is another cross-cultural tradition that demonstrates the overlap of sex and religion. The temples of Baal and Venus had a tradition in which a woman was expected to prostitute herself on behalf of the temple once in her lifetime, with the money going to the temple itself. It was a fundraiser. (laughs) An old-fashioned fundraiser. 
<laughs> very, very old fashioned. This uh, this female accepted any money given to her, and the business was done outside the house of worship. You got to keep you know yeah, keep, keep it, it on separate. the up and up. Yeah. In Hebrew tradition, the first book of Samuel says that the sons of Eli lay with the women who assembled at the tabernacle of the congregation, suggesting a similar form of sex worship. The Bible's full of fun surprises, isn't it? <laughs> they left out all the good stuff. <laughs> oh, it's in there. I just it's love wow. reading in between the lines of the Bible. Yeah, because there's always those lines and you're like, whoa, what's going on there? Jennings also identifies divine prostitutes in service of Sakti. Sakti is, in Jennings' interpretation, goddess of the vulva, although she's more properly called in Hindu culture simply the goddess. A naked girl serves as an effigy for the goddess and is given meat and wine in the goddess's place. Uh, This is a popular version of tantric worship circulated in books about Indian religion in the 19th century. So not necessarily a direct reflection on what was happening, but this is what Jennings would have read about tantric practice at the time okay but this is my favorite oh saving the best for near the end moving to the roots of christian easter Uh oh yeah this isn't going to be hard now you guys can practically do this for me can't you jenning observes a springtime tradition of erotic baking okay so that's a surprise that began in pagan europe and continued into the christian era in springtime, ancient Chaldeans dyed eggs in a traditional rite celebrating fertility. And they baked cakes and breads to resemble male and female genitals. Why are we obsessed with rabbits, the horniest of the creatures, at Easter time? Why is there a rabbit that comes to our child's home? Why do we dye eggs? What do they have to do with Jesus? Jesus gave his life on a cross. What does that have to do with eggs and rabbits? Nothing. Oh my god. I'm having yeah. like an an epiphany i think we're all doing pagan fertility worship every easter season or at least you christians are (laughs) (sighs) wow yep when did when did the whole uh easter bunny thing kind of come into play though well nobody knows i mean according to jennings it goes all the way back to the ancient chaldeans Wow. So, like, pre-Christian cultures were engaging in this as fertility rites. I would say on it, like, if you think about a lot of, I, I, I know, sorry, listeners, we talk about this a bit on the show, but Christmas, we bring a giant bush inside. Yes. That's a, that's a super pagan thing to do. Oh, to yeah. To bring greenery yeah. in the house. There's nothing to do with Jesus being born. He was born in a desert. Riley Jesus. Claxton and I used to, well, her, her last name's not that anymore, but we had this conversation, Amanda's. actually, yes. about how the trees are a pagan thing. Yeah, Yeah. because, you know, the Christians Christianized Europe and Europe was pagan and all those pagan traditions more or less persisted. I mean, Jennings is suggesting they're even more ancient than, you know, European pagan traditions that survived. But still, that's basically what happened. We just kept all that pagan stuff. Halloween. Yeah. Come on. All Hallow's Eve. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, in in medieval Europe, there would be, you know... um, the uh, New Year's Eve, New Year's yeah. Day, they would, you know, people be running around naked and partying and not much has changed then. It, it, to a certain extent, I don't know if we still run around naked, but well, what? some people do. But yeah. <laughs> depends on how the night goes. <laughs> but I want to talk about penis bread. <laughs> the braided one? Is it the braided one? Well, this is French bread, so I don't know if you're going to braid it. Oh. In Christian France, uh, in Saintonge, 
penis-shaped cakes were baked at Easter, and the town of Saints, or Saints, held Les Fêtes de Pin, or the Festival of the Penises, which included women and children parading penis-shaped bread through the streets on Palm Sunday to be blessed by a priest. Why don't we do this anymore? I know. No, this now really you just cool. split the shaft in two and make them bunny ears. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> that did hurt me as well. Palm is to be remembered is a euphemism of the male organ, and it is curious to see it united with the phallus in Christendom. Dularm also says that in some of the earlier unedited French books on cookery, recipes are given for making cakes of the salacious form in question, which are broadly named. He further tells us that those cakes symbolize the male in Lower Limousin, and especially at Breves, while the female emblem was adopted at Claremont in Auvergne and other places. In the Caves of Alora, which may sound familiar going all the way back to our Emma Harding Britain episode, the, oh, uh, wow, yeah. the Chevalier Louis de B um, achieved his uh, occult ascension in the Caves of Alora. John B. Seeley discovered beautiful statues and emblems carved into the rock. This is actual historical truth. In addition to the usual phallic obelisks, the cave featured a small temple with a large lingam covered with oil, red ochre, and flowers. Sort of a penis, the lingam, associated with Shiva. Seeley said, This deity is much frequented by female votaries who take especial care to keep it clean and often perfume it with odoriferous oils and flowers, whilst the attendant Brahmins sweep the apartment and attend the five oil lights and bell ringing. Barren women visit the lingam to improve their fertility. Jennings, drawing on other scholars, speculates as to what that ritual might look like. The women, he says, may have kissed the tip or rubbed their naked body against it or sat down on it naked i mean obviously <laughs> you just gotta do <laughs> that's this really guy. cool jeez like if he was alive he would be a great guest speaker <laughs> i'd like to hear one of those talks <laughs> right I, oh absolutely what a fun conversation yeah all right agree with him or not that's a fun conversation oh yeah Although I don't exactly believe Jennings has proven that genital worship was the heart or original form of all worship, I personally, Rob Thompson, do accept that in ancient cultures east and west, sex had a more obvious role in religious devotion than it tends to, at least in the major world religions today. Still, the question of meaning lingers. Pillars or penises, and French people bake vagina bread for Easter, so what? Jennings tries to get at this question, but he really talks around it, affirming an uh, sort of occult interpretation of the overlap between sex and spirituality. It's a mystery, he says. Jennings' beloved Rosicrucians, or R.C. brothers, profess to hold themselves aloof from, the con from contact with women, but they're primary symbols of the rose and the cross. Yeah, <laughs> right? Oh. <laughs> Clearly represent the union of the vagina and the penis. There's a lot of sexual imagery, too, in Rosicrucianism. I mean, the, the chemical wedding, I mean, you can hear the words, the chemical wedding. Mm -hmm. It's a, in part about alchemy. It's a part about symbolism. It's about the soul coming down to earth and ascending to heaven. And it's also about a male and female getting together. Hmm. I mean, all this, all through symbolically. For Jennings, the Rosicrucians had penetrated to a mystical meaning behind these symbols. The rose is feminine. Its lustrous carmine petals are guarded with thorns. The rose is the most beautiful of flowers. 
The rose is the queen of God's garden. It is not the rose alone which is the magical idea or truth, but it is the crucified rose or the martyred rose by the grand mystic apocalyptic figure, which is the talisman, the standard, the object of adoration of all the sons of wisdom or of the true Rosicrucians. How this latter assertion should be intelligible and be real can only be seen, of course, mystically, in the conviction of the genuine members of the RC. Right, the experienced. <laughs> yes, in other words. <laughs> what exactly Jennings means by this is not especially clear, which he more or less admits, but he clarifies earlier that martyrdom in this context is not about physical death. Rather, as Anna's saying, martyrdom has something to do with the transformation of the virgin into the Magdalene, the white woman into the red woman virgin into experienced woman <laughs> i mean this is the first thing that came to my head experienced not in like had a lot but like had experienced the event well i mean if we're thinking 19th century terms one experience is enough yeah no you're not a virgin anymore truth i mean we still talk in those terms we just don't make so much of it i hope mm-hmm Sex is what we're talking about here, as we have been. To worship the martyred rose is to worship the sexually active woman, the pregnant mother, the sacred harlot. In his essay on the mystical nature of sex, Jennings says that sex is the union of the male's half-sex and the female's half-sex to form the whole sex, or hermaphrodite. Yeah. Wild. That is pretty wild. <laughs> Jennings says that the magic of the sex organs is evident in the fact that we conceal them. If we did not conceal our sex organs, then they would lose their magical power and we would lose our desire for each other. I don't know that this is true, but it's an interesting idea. If there are any nudist listeners, <laughs> yes, let us know. <laughs> Please let us know. If you're constantly looking at penises and vaginas, are you not interested in them anymore? Um, This is most evident in the case of the female. The feminine is a kind of sexual ideal, with the more feminine male as the standard for male beauty, Apollo, Dionysus, and Adonis, rather than Mars and Hercules. Uh, Jacob, I would say you and I do not identify as highly masculine men. We're more gender fluid in our performance. So we're we're also prettier. We are pretty. (laughs) (laughs) In a certain sense, a beautiful, perfectly formed naked woman is singular and unexpected as the expression may seem until the appreciation realizes the reasons. A terrible object we mean in the sense, the abstract sense of awe at her as wonder, as the work of a maker, and as the presentation of her as temptation. The virgin is magical because of her availability, the prospect of conception, but she loses her magic to pregnancy. She no longer possesses the allure of the possibility of procreation. However, if a woman withholds herself and remains a virgin for too long, she becomes suspect in the eyes of society. Her power becomes too great or perhaps perverted by time. So there's really no way to maintain that virginal magic. Jennings is speaking, of course, from the perspective of, as I've said many times, the 19th century and Victorian sexual values, but much of this strange cultural mystery of sex and sexuality persists for us today in different terms. Pornography trades in the barely legal teen, as well as the MILF, the virgin and the sexually experienced woman. 
Women fret over their biological clock and are considered mature if giving birth in their mid-30s. And we continue to marginalize sex workers, most obviously in the way they're treated by social media platforms where near-naked influencers can rack up deals to sell skincare products, but porn actresses can't link to their OnlyFans page. Think about this for a second, right? If you're in your bikini and you're playing the virgin, that's often a more lucrative role than going whole hog into pornography. All into it, yeah. Yeah. So I'm just... I don't have the answer here. I'm just talking through how Jennings is, in a way, touching into issues that are present. Like, he's talking about us. They're pretty prevalent issues, like, today. Yeah. yeah. He's talking about Victorian America and England, but he's also talking about to us right now. <laughs> wow. He's talking about Instagram. Wow. Despite all these complexities, particularly for the female of the species, pregnancy is the ultimate goal of the sexual urge and invites divinity into the conjugal bed or couch or floor, wherever you're at. That's me. I was going to say, did Jennings say that? No, that's me. That's me. <laughs> I don't think he would have included the floor. This was the Victorian period on a... That was true. <laughs> or the mat or the back seat, whatever. The back seat of your carriage. The horse's back. back. The horse's back. <laughs> oh, my God. Holy hell, I don't want to even. <laughs> Sex itself, no matter whether it is performed reverently as a spiritual act or in the most depraved way imaginable, invites the presence of God if it results in conception. The procreative act is rendered supernatural by the presence of the divine who stamps his image on the child conceived in the womb, no matter how you're doing it. This doesn't so much answer the complexities of the naked female, virginal or with child, it just further shows how very complicated all of this is is i'm winding to a conclusion here so just so you know <laughs> i'm not going to give you guys anything satisfying on jennings he's he's a man who just charts the mystery that's all he's doing hmm. in way he's, he's sort of like us in many ways all jennings is doing is circling around the mystery of sex as a human experience complete with its contradictions and neuroses finally he has no solution to the questions he raises and this is in part his point the fact that sex poses these mysteries renders it an object for intense reverence, but also shame. We are driven, perplexed, and obsessed with sex for good reason. There's nothing simple and everything consequential about it. On that, Jennings and I can agree. And while the scholarship, uh, while his scholarship is subject to doubt, particularly today, his humility in the face of his subject is something we can all learn from. That's Jennings, guys. Final thoughts? That's a lot to unpack. <laughs> I agree. I mean, he's not really wrong. Sex is kind of in everything. It's yeah, yeah, and it continues to be tough to be sexually active and tough to be a virgin and particularly tough to be a woman. Yeah. Right? Am I right, Anna? You're the woman. I am the woman. Female. Yeah, it can be tough to be a woman. For, I mean, does, does this, was what he's described, does that ring true for you? You know, there's a desire to be desired, but also you're shamed for seeking desire. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Given the attention. If, well, the, the whole thing, like you've probably heard before, if you have a lot of sex, you're a slut. If you don't, you're a prude. You get shamed no matter what. You get shamed no matter what. And, and people, like you said, that they desire virgins. And, but they also it, it's so it's so strange because it's all he's saying now is still so true yeah people want that there's that virginal allure that virgin yeah. power but there's also the 
the power of the sexually experienced woman. Yeah, it just, it makes you think, like, is anything actually going to change? Like, is it, because if it's been happening for that long, like, is that the nature <laughs> of human beings? Or is that, like, are we just fucked? Yeah. <laughs> if he was even saying it, like, then... And like, I mean, yeah, people are more like open and they discuss things and you can post things or whatever, like now. But even if he was like, hey, this is a thing or issues are back then and we're still like that, it's it's progress, but slow progress. I mean, I think what we were talking about earlier is we were sort of joking around a little bit, but there's something to it, like the spiritualization of sex, you know, of the engagement with the vagina of the origin there's a solution in there that a woman can be desirable and a sexual being and someone that I want to have sex with out of an attitude of respect and reverence and desire. Like these things can go hand in hand. I, I don't want to go too out on a limb here, but I worry that on left and right, you know, on the right, there's a sort of demonization of sex on the left. There's been some of this going on too. I understand it's to protect people, but we also have to bear in mind that, Part of what it does is say that, you know, it, it criminalizes desire, yeah. which we can't really control. We desire who we desire. We then have to act responsibly and respectfully. But is it necessarily wrong to communicate desire is maybe my question. I guess it depends on the circumstance. Yeah, it depends on how you go about communicating your desire. I mean, a part of what bothers me or what has bothered me lately, and, and this is, you know, this will be my generational divide with you guys, which, by the way, you guys are increasingly getting dis more distant from my current students who are of a different generation from my millennials. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> but, uh, you know, even the millennials, you know, the younger millennials would tell me, I don't want to be approached, Rob, in person. I don't, you know, a heterosexual female would say to me, I don't want to be approached by a male in person. I would rather it happen on the internet. So that would mean that, you know, if a man sees you in class or whatever, or I think this is true, but probably maybe in the gay community too, Jacob, I don't know that it's just harder and harder to express desire in person. The people to view that as too aggressive to even say, you know, Hey, I, I think you're pretty cool. Do you want to go out later? Mm -hmm. If it's in person, this is viewed as too aggressive. I don't, I mean, that's how I met went like that's, <laughs> that's how I used to do it. Like, it's, it, if you're respectful, I don't understand. Yeah. I can't even say like one instance of actually like being out and someone coming up just to actually like hit on or anything like that. It's just not as. It's yeah. It's just so unheard of now. And yeah. I think like people have had a lot of trauma for mm -hmm. when it comes to people approaching them or like they've been again like social media they've spoke out on things now so now there's this generalization of oh you know that this isn't safe if somebody approaches me oh I don't know you you know like the world is a different place now and it's scary to meet strangers when in reality like it could be okay I'm speaking only from my own experience because I'm lucky enough that it, everything has been okay um but well, not that the internet's protecting you, though. I mean, you meet a man on Tinder. Absolutely not. I mean, there's a whole show, Catfish. Like, there's creeps yeah. out there no matter what. I think people are just t taking a different approach now because, I don't know, 
I think we're losing our ability to have the co-present. I, I, maybe people are feeling less secure in their ability to judge each other and decide who's safe and whether someone's being honest. Maybe the internet and the phone is taking away our ability to look each other in the eye and say, oh yeah, this person's all Yeah, right, maybe in each other, right. maybe in, in ourselves. We're, we're judging ourselves. Isn't there something sexy, something magical about seeing a human body in space and being attracted to that body and expressing that desire and hearing that you that person is also attracted to you? Oh, absolutely. Isn't there something absolutely, lost yeah. and you can't do that anymore? I know. I think I think people still do experience that too, but maybe they just don't follow through with the actual action of talking. Well, you experience desire for sure, right? Yeah, unless you're Constantly. in a particular setting, because like in in I know. Like sororities and fraternities, that is a big thing. Like people do approach each other because that also is a place where a lot of sex happens. Or like a, cl- a dance club. Is that not still the thing? A dance club. Oh, yeah. yeah. What the hell am I? Yeah, no, it's true. Clubs. Yeah. Disco, oh. discotheques. What the hell? I think that's <laughs> the only places that like I, I do take it back a little bit. The, some of the gay clubs and stuff like that that I've been to. Obviously, it's. uh breeding pool essentially but like that's people will constantly like come up or like stare across the room and then make a move and whatnot well the gay issue now jacob for me is that gay clubs are closing aren't we're losing gay clubs yeah i was (laughs) there's like three maybe it's the internet that's killing them isn't it yeah kind of yeah they're like and well that's a big thing um most of the ones in like dc and stuff like that they started closing down because of they were just trying to build more houses and whatnot. And then also gentrified out. Yeah. And then some of the other more like sex clubs and stuff like that. There's like, I think maybe one like left out of those, but the rest of them have closed down just because of it's a consistent battle. Just the gays having just dance clubs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I heard it's also an issue of um, the straight people just infiltrating their space. That is such a common thing that, like, yep. obviously everyone is welcome no matter what. Yeah. But, like, there towards the end before uh, some of the ones that I used to go to, it was it was such a common thing that, like, it's it's like a place to go and express yourself. But then it's a lot of guy and girl couples and stuff like that, like, showing up because she wants to, like, come and he's tagging along. Right. Well, it's... so I was with some, some girlfriends of mine in Atlanta. And we actually did go to a gay club, but we were mm-hmm. having a conversation to a guy, a, I mean, with a guy, about mm-hmm. if they were comfortable with straight women coming into a space where, you know, they were obviously looking for a partner for whatever, you know, mm-hmm. in their own community. And this particular person didn't mind. However, I went upstairs and some guys started talking to us and I was I was just a little bit confused because that wasn't what I was expecting and he said oh I'm straight I just come here because all the straight girls come here and I was like that's kind of fucked <laughs> like what are you it's doing common thing to happen and like it's and obviously like I have a lot of like gay friends and stuff like that who are I mean it's not like we'll tell anyone to no, like not come. And like, I know um, I've had a few friends in the past, uh, gal pals and whatnot, that they like go to gay clubs because it feels more of like a safer environment in general. And like, yeah, like that's awesome. Like it's good. Everyone should feel comfortable where they're at. But like 
mostly like straight guys like coming in too and then like it's it's pushing the people that out almost that it was originally tended for and not that like excluding anyone because everyone should be included in like things but it became less and less of a thing like even like drag shows and stuff like that it's very few gay friends and stuff that i have like would go to those things anymore because it's not like a our culture thing anymore it's mainstream it's, it's becoming mainstream and it's becoming less of like what it meant to the community to paul RuPaul, oh my gosh! Don't even get me started. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a I mean, there's a drag the, club in Richmond. Everybody goes. Everyone mm-hmm. goes. So that makes sense. Yeah, that's been happening for decades. I mean, yeah. gay oh, culture, yeah. gay black culture. I mean, it's been appropriated. Madonna, oh, yeah. like we go back to Madonna before even where they're appropriating Ruby. and and the, the backup dancers, like they're all being drawn from the same place. Yeah. But now it's sort of disappearing because it's been swallowed too much. You guys have become too mainstream. We we are too mainstream. Too That's successful. What, yeah, it's everyone assumes all the gays like RuPaul. <laughs> <laughs> I know maybe a handful that actually do. <laughs> Seems like a lot of work to be RuPaul. Yeah. All right, Jacob. Do you know how to bring us home? Um, uh, I I hereby declare close this secret meeting of the alchemical actors until such a time as we get together and do it again it's mostly good but i have to always remind people the meeting is not secret on account of they can hear us in sweden oh ah, i i did it too (laughs) Uh, Uh, our voices today include luke kinnaman and andrew mims Uh, my name is rob thompson joined by jacob wheatley knight of the dangling serpent Good, good night. Good night. <laughs> good night, and be gay, be straight, be phallic. You know, do you? Be Yanni. Be young. Uh, Anna Pavon, uh, who doesn't have a title yet, but if she keeps this up, it's inevitable. Anna the <laughs> inevitable. Anna the inevitable. Oh, hold on to that one. Back pocket that. Join us next time uh, when we talk about Orgone and Orgasm. Yes, we're talking about Reich's Orgone boxes uh, and his vision of orgasm as a liberation for humankind and an answer perhaps to fascism. Here are Occult Confessions. <laughs> oh, can't wait.